Welcome to There's More to That Story, the podcast where I, DJ Mercer, your host, tell you what makes a story great so you can love it more or maybe just hate it less. Alright, another book already. I've been told that I read fast. This one will go much better than the last one. You guys don't know because of the recording issue, but it was a long podcast. I did it on the second book in the series, so I had to recap the first one before I could start talking about the second one, and it was just it was a mess. Uh, but this one is the first book in a series, so things should go much smoother. This book is called Feed by Myra Grant, and I'm very excited to talk about it because it illustrates the point of this podcast. Now, because my first book podcast was mysteriously a no-show, I need to give you this explanation again. As I've said before, I don't want this to just be about movies. I want to do books, too, because they have stories in them. Shocking. Now, there are two issues with books, though. One, they require a little more work on my part, just in terms of time. If I need a refresher on a book, it takes a lot longer than the maximum of four hours a movie would take. Fortunately, that problem has been solved. I started a new job that allows me to read on my commute. Happy me! Now I can do a podcast right after I finish a book, so it's fresh in my mind. The second problem, though, is my policy on spoiling everything. There are a lot more books out there than movies. People have taste in what kind of stories they want to see and read, and books are a lot more work than movies. So, while someone may be willing to give two hours to a movie they're not sure that they'd like, they're less likely to give several days to a book that they're not quite certain on. You wouldn't want to listen to a podcast about a book you haven't read, and I don't want you to skip podcasts. So, my solution is to keep giving you podcasts about movies every Monday morning, but some Wednesdays you'll be treated to a special bonus book episode. You know, every time I finish one. So, spoiler alert, and I really must insist that if you haven't read this book, and the odds are not good, I think, you need to stop this podcast now, because it had a huge spoiler that I did not see coming, and I would hate to ruin it for you. And it's a good book. I promise that if I read a book and don't like, you know, I don't like it, I won't be super forceful that you read it. But this one, you should. So, last chance to stop listening. Right now. Okay, if you're still here, I'll assume that you've read the book, and you're, and if you're lying to me, I won't know, but you will, and there, then there will be a telltale heart situation going on. Your pages fluttering in the night from, or your library card will start making noise. I don't know. How would that work? Anyway. So, I know I've said that I don't want to be a critic, but I have a reason for what I'm about to say. I had a lot of problems with this book. Something that writers occasionally do, primarily by accident, that really drives me nuts, is they'll introduce a character to you, and then four chapters later, they'll give you a line like, she nudged her blonde hair out of her eyes, and you think, wait, she's blonde? I've been picturing a brunette for 18 pages. Now I have to completely redesign her in my head. I doubt authors do it on purpose very often. There are probably some weird ones that do, but it bothers me that they didn't catch it. And I think this book does it twice. This book is written in the first person, and since you've read it, you know about George's eye condition and her sunglasses. I don't think it mentions her sunglasses until she takes them off, which leaves like four chapters of not knowing that she's wearing them, and that's a big oversight, especially for something 
that's that big of a detail for how you see her. And also, the second one, I'm fairly certain it happens again after the Eakly zombie attack. I don't think that you're told there's snow on the ground or that it's even cold until George and Sean are watching the security footage later and it says something about uh, they watch the blood hit the snow or something like that. Um, it's weird. I So... That's something that bothered me both times it happened. I was like, wait a minute. I have to rethink how this entire thing happened. Um, also, I didn't care for Sean and George's relationship. Not because they were, like, too close for siblings and it was creepy. Um, and they weren't related. And so it was like, are they... And so you might... Some people might have thought, are they going to push this into that territory? And they didn't. Don't worry. Um, which you know because you read the book. But I didn't like the way they interacted because it's not the way that two 20-something siblings that really love each other interact. It was the way that two teenage siblings that really love each other interact. Really, I'm not exaggerating. While reading this book, I had to remind myself that these characters were not 15. Uh, second big problem, or third, third big problem. Buffy being a traitor came out of nowhere. There are no hints about it anywhere. And as a devout Christian, the reason that she did betray her friends was just dumb. She sold her team out after being convinced by a group of religious nuts that it was the right thing to do. Now, Buffy is frankly a slut. She writes erotica, and she has had 12 different boyfriends in two years, all of whom she sleeps with a lot. Now, in my understanding of religion, that is not a person that would be convinced to betray her friends for the salvation of the country. But then she is crazy enough to say grace before she eats. Only a full-on Jesus freak would do something insane like that, right? It just doesn't make any sense, and it really comes out of left field. You're not even given a reason to suspect that there is a traitor in the group, much less that it would be Buffy if there was. So this brings me to another big problem with this book. It's pretty blatantly anti-religion. I don't have a problem with an author doing that. It's a point of view that people have, and you shouldn't be prevented from writing it. But it was it was lazy and ridiculous. The main villain is a fire and brimstone Christian that is so obviously evil that you're almost positive that he couldn't be. But then he is, and you're like, wow, really? This is a political intrigue story. I'm not supposed to know who the villain is the first time he speaks. <sighs> the dialogue is another big problem. It falls into the trap of trying too hard to be bantery. It goes on too long. It's not very clever, and it's obvious that the author thinks that it's clever, which makes it kind of annoying. I blame Joss Whedon for this, and... Uh, should know her name, Ari Sheridan Pequeno or something like that. The the Gilmore Girls chick. It's a lot of it's a problem that a lot of modern authors have, um, including myself when I write things. And editors just really need to get better at tamping down on this. Like I I fully expect when I finally finish my book and I try to get it published, somebody ever picks it up, that they will say, okay, this this is too much dialogue. And if they don't, I'm going to ask for another editor if I can. I'll be like, no, they, I need somebody meaner. Please. 
No, no, don't terminate my contract. I just want I want it to be better. No, stop. Ah. These are the things that haunt me. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, <laughs> this is so weird. The most dramatic part of the book is nearly ruined. The entire book seems to make it very clear that George's blog is written. She doesn't do video. So why in the world does the transcript of her dying blog, or just her dying blog, not even a transcript because it was written down, turn into Monty Python's cave writing? If she were dying, she wouldn't bother to write, shoot me, Sean. She'd just say it. Was it supposed to be a video and we were just never told that? That's a pretty big oversight if that was the case. And you're never even sure if that is the case. It just kind of hang in the air like, why was why was she writing that? That's, what the heck? That doesn't make any sense. What? Why? Ugh, it was really irksome. And, okay, finally, last problem, I promise. It's really it. This one is more of a personal one. Um, I like to read books as a kind of escapism. It's nice to get sucked into another world for a few hours a day and leave yours. And I started reading this book two, two, three weeks ago, and I discovered in chapter five that it was going to be following a presidential campaign. It made me mad at whoever wrote the blurb on the book. You should warn people about that kind of thing. I want got away from the stupid freaking election everywhere. Now it's my escapism. Warn a guy. Now, with all of that, why am I excited to talk about this book? Because it had all of those problems, but the story was so interesting that I missed my bus stop by almost a mile two Wednesdays ago. I completely forgot where I was. The story is gripping. Myra Grant's world feels realistic, and she writes action really well. It moves along along quickly, but it lets you know what's going on, which is a really difficult skill to master in writing. Action scenes are one of the hardest things to do, and something Brandon Sanderson is a master of. Um, From the first sequence of George and John escaping from a mob of zombies, I was hooked. After that, it takes a little while to get moving. You meet the senator, you go to a few campaign stops, and then the zombies attack again for the first time in a long while. Like I said in the second Alien podcast, you don't need to have the monsters show up immediately, and this story does a good job of keeping you interested. How? Myra creates a world that is hanging by a thread, and you wonder if it's going to get worse or if it's going to get better. And then you wonder how for both options. This keeps you guessing until things really get going. And the tension built up in the story is fantastic because of that. Also, speaking of zombies, isn't it great to read a story where they're actually referred to as zombies? My gosh, it's been years since that happened. The entire film world has gone out of its way to not say zombie. It's really odd. But... All that aside, the moment of the plot twist is when this book really cemented itself as a good story. And it's not something that would be a plot twist in any other kind of book. This is the first first-person story I have ever read that kills the narrator. That moment was so shocking that I didn't think it could be real. And for all of my complaints about the characterization, I will admit that it is obvious when Sean becomes the narrator. The voicing behind everything has a very distinct change. This book is good about giving no unnecessary scenes to. Everything just zips along at a quick pace, and every scene feels important, or at least enjoyable. Um, 
to the point that you don't notice if it's not important. I can't really think of any superfluous scenes. Um, there were some shorter ones that's like, eh, I don't really need that. But, you know, books are full of those. So, what is the story about? It's kind of shallow, really. It's about a journalist's desire for the truth. And she's willing to do whatever it takes to find the truth and tell the truth. Now, because of that, it has us rooting for her to succeed. In this world we live in right now, no one trusts anything. And we want someone honest to succeed at being honest. Because deep down, we know that there's a truth. And it's more and more difficult to find it these days. And we are hungrier for it now than I think we as a civilization have ever been. Um and that kind of overshadows another problem that the book has that I didn't really go into. And that is, there's, Georgia has no character flaw. She's angsty. That's, that's her problem. And it's something we're used to with characters. We don't see cynical or angsty as being a character flaw anymore. Um, other than that, she's perfect. She's always honest. She's also always true. She can't be bought or sold or anything. She's... She's too perfect, and it's it would normally be a problem, but it creates... I think that this is a very timely book, or it's a timely character trait to be super honest and want to tell the truth, because it's something that we all want, and so that overrides our noticing that she's not a very realistic or not very real character because of that. And her lack of a character flaw prevents this book from getting very deep. But again, you don't notice because it's presented in such because it's presented in such a way that you really enjoy what's happening and you don't really have time to think about it because the movie the movie the book moves along so quickly. I really don't have a lot to say about this book. I've got a lot more experience talking about movies than books, so please bear with me while I learn how. This book has no real plot twists. I mean Georgia does die, but that's really only a plot twist because she's the narrator. And it doesn't have a difficult-to-solve mystery, like, at all. Like I said, the first time you meet the villain, you know exactly who it is. Um, but it's really thrilling to read, and if you just let yourself get sucked in, you'll have a blast reading it, as you know, because you read it, right? So, uh, this is really more of a review than a discussion, huh? Alright, uh, new podcast Monday. Subscribe if you want to be sure you hear it. Email me at morethatstorypodcast at gmail.com if there's a movie that you like and you think other people should, or if there's a movie other people like and you think they should. Or you think you should like it. Or if there's a story that you can't explain why you like it, or you can't imagine why anyone else does. I'll be reading Doom next if you want to get ready for the next podcast, and I will talk to you soon.